This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Lots of attention being paid today to, of course, this ride-hailing issue in the taxi industry for a couple of different reasons. You've got this letter from the BC Transportation Minister to the Passenger Transportation Board expressing some concerns over the decision the board made to have no cap on a fleet size for the ride-hailing companies. Uh, they say there's some worries about congestion, worried about some problems that they might cause for that. Meanwhile, you've got the Vancouver Taxi Association. They have now, uh, they're going, they're turning to the legal avenue that they may or may not have when it comes to fighting this issue. They said they want their day in court. They believe that they don't have a level playing field, that they are being hard done by here. And they said they just, they don't like this process. They thought they thought it was going to go well, but the lack of a cap size on the fleet, uh, the boundary issue, they just say it's all too much and they're going to take this whole thing to court. So we thought we would ask you uh, about this today for our hot question of the day. Do you think it is unfair to the taxi industry. Like, is the taxi industry hard done by in this whole situation? Do you say, yes, these poor drivers, these poor cabbies, look at how things are changing for them, or do you think, no, they should have to suck it up? Now, I just I just don't know how they you couldn't see this coming. <laughs> like, come on. Usually when you have a technology that disrupts an industry, it happens so quickly that there is, you know, no time to react, no time, no, and you just get the follow. That didn't happen here in BC with ride hailing. We've had lots of time. We have had years to see this coming. And the fact that like, you know, taxis are still saying, oh, this is awful for us. This is awful for us without, you know, looking around and saying we better adapt and see how we can improve the situation. I'm just astounded by that. So I don't think the taxi industry is that hard done by. I think there's ways to adapt to this. But maybe you disagree. So let's hear it. Go to our hot question of the day, Simi Sarah 980 or at CKNW and cast your vote. You can also email me, Simi at CKNW.com and let us know how you feel about this or use our buzz line, 604-331-2899. I am not unsympathetic to those drivers who own the license and they're going to see the value of their license go down. That is a bummer, but they did pay overpay for a lot of years on that. That is an issue for sure. But for drivers, is that as much of an issue when they can now perhaps drive for these other companies? They've got the requirements already. Weigh in with our hot question of the day here on the Simi Sarah Show. We want our day in court. We thought that the procedure we were going through for the last year and a half was excellent. We thought we were going to accomplish things that were going to be on a fair level playing field. And that is so untrue. That is Carolyn Bauer of the Taxi Association, upset as they have been ever since it was announced that ride hailing is coming to BC. They want their day in court, as you heard her say, which means they expect to take this to to the legal avenue now. And all of this comes on the backdrop as the NDP government is also getting a lot of criticism right now for its approach to this because of a letter written by the Transportation Minister to the supposedly independent Passenger Transportation Board raising some concerns. Let's break all of this down now with the help of Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislator Bureau Chief. Hi, Keith. Hey, morning, Simi. Okay, so what's the deal with this letter? I read through the letter. I saw the concerns there. What do you think is going on here? Well, I think going on is the uh, the taxi industry in Metro Vancouver flexing its political muscle. I've never seen anything like this where a transportation minister and the premier both get involved in writing letters uh, one to the, the uh, supposedly independent agency saying, on the one hand, this is really no, we're not directing you to do this, but read between the lines, it says, I'm directing you to do this, which is to review a decision that's already made to placate an industry that has a disproportionate amount of political power, and then a premier writing the industry himself uh, in an extraordinary intervention. So I think this is uh, another indication that the taxi industry has a disproportionate sort of political spell over the NDP. And it's interesting, what I found fascinating is uh, Premier uh, Horgan's letter to Carolyn Bauer, the spokesperson for the Vancouver Taxi Association, is who he CC'd on the letter. Hmm. And it's the MLAs in his caucus who represent ridings where 
we've always thought the taxi industry held disproportionate political power. And those are the writings of Surrey, Burnaby, and Delta North. I mean, it's there in black and white. It was, again, extraordinary. He didn't see, see the rest of his caucus. It was these particular writings, Surrey and Burnaby, where the taxi industry seems to be politically powerful. And why that's interesting is that the election... Um, sort of map in BC is so tight politically, yeah. as we saw in the 2017 election, every writing is precious. And a number of the writings that he singled out here in terms of caucus representation are so-called swing writings where one party only beat the other party by a relatively small margin. So this is raw political uh, power uh, play at its core more than anything right. else. How much of this do you think is political cover so that they can go back and say, oh, we tried, look at, we did this for you? I think a lot of it is political cover. I think uh, they're trying to show the taxi industry, we've got your back here. Uh, why the why the Premier's office and the Transportation Minister should be so surprised at the board's uh, decision to have no caps and uh, have basically no boundaries is surprising, given that the all-party legislative committee came up with this recommendation. Yeah. I mean, their own people on the committee signed off on this, and yet uh, it was right off the bat, I thought something was up when um, no sooner had the, uh, the board released its ruling on no caps and wide boundaries when you saw Solicitor General Mike Farnworth publicly state he was surprised about the no caps. And then Ginny Sims, another cabinet minister, voicing her concerns about it. It's quite unusual for cabinet ministers to question publicly the ruling of a uh, a government agency, mm-hmm. even a quasi-independent one. It's a, it's a very unusual situation and, again, speaks to the disproportionate uh, political influence the taxi industry has. Yeah, and I'm, I'm concerned about the, the, the issue of the congestion one, right? They keep using this as an excuse. But on the other hand, you hear the ride-hailing companies complaining that because of the Class 4 requirement issue, they don't think they're even going to get enough people to operate. Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is a long-term play. Uh, I don't think the taxi industry can make any, any um, argue, make a credible argument that suddenly their industry is going to be uh, in upheaval in a, in a short time frame, because you're right, it's, it's going to take time to to collect a number of drivers uh, who have Class 4 licenses. But I think the notion that the concern about the caps and the the lack of caps on the number of of licenses and the concerns about um, congestion are kind of, I think, cover for what's really going on here. In Trevena's letter, uh, she says to uh, the Passenger Transportation Board uh, that she wants their decision should be reviewed in a timely way to ensure the viability of the taxi industry alongside TSN, TNS services, and that the taxi industry does not experience serious economic dislocation before a supply or cap decision occurs. So this letter was about protecting the taxi industry, not about concerns about congestion uh, yeah. or anything else. This was basically a cover for protecting an industry that uh, has a, the NDP government in its thrall. And why hasn't the taxi industry, if they really truly want a level playing field, said, let us get rid of boundaries? Well, that, that's that's another good question. I mean, the, the and this may be very well where we're headed. I mean, the taxi industry has guarded those boundaries zealously, particularly the Vancouver Taxi Association. They like to guard the downtown core to itself. Uh, other taxi uh, associations probably are more in favor of relaxing the boundaries because they have more to gain. Uh, and that may, may very well be where the compromise is down the road, that uh, to placate the taxi industry, they do even the playing field. It'll be interesting whether the taxi industry is going to be able to succeed in court to challenging this ruling, uh, arguing that uh, this is uh, legally untenable because it does not establish a level playing field. And maybe that's where the compromise is. You get rid of the boundaries for everybody. Uh, you have class four licenses and, you know, may the best company win. Yeah, exactly. Now let's talk about the opposition here too, because they have been wading into this. What is the BC Liberal stand on this? Well, you know, in, they certainly were in no rush to established ride-hailing services in B.C. when they were in power. They had a long time to deal with this. Mm -hmm. They came into it late in the game. uh, Just on the eve of the last election in 2017, they brought in a bill uh, that sort of started to pave the way. But that was, I think, sort of a a Hail Mary pass at the end there. So I don't think they necessarily have credibly clean hands on this. But they're certainly more aggressive in pushing for 
for this. Uh, at the committee stage, uh, they were much more in favor of, uh, of, of sort of a, a free market here, minimal regulation, uh, not having the Class 4 licenses. Uh, so they're a little ahead of the NDP on this. But again, given their track record in government, I'm not sure they can establish that they have more credibility on this issue than the NDP, because I think the argument can be made the Liberals, too, are, uh, you know, at the beck and call of the taxi industry because they want those ridings that, uh, the, that the Premier's office focused on. They yeah. want, they need to, for them to form power, they need to win the ridings in Burnaby and Surrey. The North, North uh, Surrey and the Burnaby ridings are key to uh, swinging electoral hopes to whichever party can hold those ridings. And, and that's why the taxis be, have bedeviled and bewitched the Liberals as well as the NDP. So by kicking this then to the Passenger Transportation Board, and even though they're you know saying that they're raising concerns and all of that right now, does that allow them to say both sides, well, you know, we tried, we, we did what we could, but it's coming now and there's nothing we can do? Well, I think there's a bit of that. and I, But I think they, the NDP has to be a little concerned that over time, whether the taxi lobby doesn't end up viewing the Liberals with much more in a favorable lens than the NDP, even though they tried to say they handed this off to the the passenger board, because it is still a board that's under the government's control. It is quasi-independent, but you know, we've seen independent bodies supposedly before be replaced by people more favorable to the government. So uh, I think this is still an open question whether the Liberals can take political advantage of this. But I'm not sure that the Transportation Board gives the NDP enough power, enough cover right. to, take, to shed all responsibility for what uh, is going to come down the road. As you and I have talked about this many times. I still say this is a very much an, a fluid, open situation. You I've never so? been convinced that this was really going to happen in any short time frame because right, the other thing is, is here is ride-hailing, ride-sharing, um, whatever you want to call it, it's not an industry that's in the NDP's uh, political DNA. It's, it's, uh, the NDP historically favors regulating industries, and this is an unregulated industry industry. It favors industries that, that are, you know, pro-union or at least give uh, their workers a decent wage. Well, ride-hailing doesn't pay people a decent wage. It's not a full-time job for a lot of people, so the wages aren't really that high. There's minimal benefits. It's not a unionized workforce. Uh, it's, it's it's sort of robust regulations, and that's just not what the NDP historically is about at its political core, which is why another reason why I think they've been a little skitterish on embracing this industry with any sort of finality. Right. So if they can somehow, I mean, can you think it could actually be stopped now, given how far down the track this has gone? Uh, I don't think it can be stopped, but it can certainly be delayed if uh, if roadblocks are put in their place. If, uh, But I'm not sure a cap on ride-hailing services would actually derail Uber from coming in. I mean, uh, it's going to, by their own admission, it's going to take a long time to ramp up to, to get enough people, as we talked about earlier, to get actually people with Class 4 licenses in the, in the cars actually performing these services. This could be several years down the road. So Still? I think, I think the NEP hit the panic button here and, um, in, a, in a sort of uh, quicker-than-thought fashion because a lot of this is going to take some time to play out. And I don't think... Uh, I think they were caught off guard by the fact that the PTV came in with this, even though the all-party committee did recommend this. I think they were thinking the PTV was probably a little more... Uh, timid than what yeah. they've shown to be uh, as a result of uh, these admissions. But it's going to take some time to ramp up. But I think what the taxi industry's done is they've, they've fast-forwarded this thing by going to court so quickly. It's causing the courts to get involved in this process, which I don't think a lot of people saw coming. No, I didn't see that at all. Okay, no. Keith, thank you. All right, Sammy. That's Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief, talking about this story about, as he just pointed out, taxi industry ramping up their opposition to the process of ride hailing, but by deciding they're going to get the courts involved here. Well, we've been getting quite the response to our discussion about taxis and ride hailing, as you might expect with this issue. Uh, the Transportation Minister, Claire Trevena, has been criticized for a letter that she sent to the Passenger Transportation Board. Well, the minister is actually going to be joining us coming up over the noon hour, and we'll ask her some questions about that, obviously. So make sure you stay tuned to hear what she has to say. That's coming up over the noon hour here on the show. In the meantime, I think it's fair to say that the city of Vancouver is a city of of dogs. In fact, all over Metro Vancouver, dog ownership is so common. You see people out walking their pets all the time. And when you do, have you ever wondered, hey, what happens to all that dog poop? I mean, it's hard enough just getting people to pick it up off the street, isn't it? Well, dog waste results in thousands of tons of waste every year. 
But what do we do with it? Well, Vancouver actually pays for a process that grosses a lot of people out when you hear the details. So they have these uh, a pilot project with these red bins at six city parks. So they collect the dog waste from these red bins. Then they pay a contractor for this process where people are paid to slice open those plastic bags mix everything up with water, and then send it through to the sewage treatment center. Sounds disgusting, right? There has got to be a better way. Well, that's what Vancouver is hoping. And to talk more about that, about what the city is trying to do, we're joined now by Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today. How big of a problem is this for the city of Vancouver, all of this dog waste out there? So you're asking me why we should give a crap about dog waste, is that? (laughs) I wasn't going to put it that way, but if you're going to put it that way, yes. Why should we? (laughs) Um, Well, we should because it's part of our um, sort of uh, our waste stream. Um, And right now, a lot of it is going into landfill. And so dog waste creates um, methane, which is a um, greenhouse gas, um, which is not good for the environment. And if it's not treated, it can go into our waterways and our oceans as well. Right. And we have a lot of dogs. We have a lot of dogs. We have between 32,000 and 55,000 estimated number of dogs in the city of Vancouver. And uh, so far with the pilot program that the city was running for the last three years in six Vancouver parks, it's the red bins. So that's easy, those bright red ones that are specifically and only for dog waste. We've collected 25 tons of dog waste through that. 25 tons in just those red bins. Just in that small trial in those six parks. All right. And here comes the gross part, because I was reading about this in the Globe and Mail this Mm -hmm. week. What happens to the dog waste in those red bins? Glad you asked that. It's um, Right now it's a manual process. And so the reason that, um, maybe I can back up a bit, the reason it goes into red bins and not green bean, bins is that because those um, composters say that it's too difficult to compost along with the other materials that are in the green bins. And so right now it's a manual process, which involves actually cutting open the bags and debagging that, mixing the waste with water, and then it goes into our waste treatment system. So the city has to contract out that job to people who cut open those bags. We do. There's a service that uh, that has been doing that, um, and you can imagine it's dirty not work. Nice work. Yeah. No, it's uh, it, it is it is dirty work, but it's not scalable um, in terms of wanting to expand that. And and you know the number of dogs is growing in the city. We have more than 240 parks. Our pilot program was only in six. Um, so you do the math, it moves quite quickly. And yeah. so the city's put out a call to uh, look for some entrepreneurial folks that uh, may have different technologies that we can utilize to scale up and try to expand this program. And also, I think a lot of people are under the impression that those bags that they're putting the dog poop into are compostable because it says so when you buy them. Uh, yeah, and oftentimes they're not. And I understand that there is a um, a case being brought forward um, nationally by an environmental group for that reason, um, citing the fact that the bags are being, are mislabeled. Um, and that's part of it. And it, interestingly, um, I got a video actually, uh, cause people are starting to talk a lot about this topic yesterday from a resident who sent it in about an inventor in the UK who was piloting a program with a biodigester. And it also involved putting it into a paper, um, bag. Um, you take that biodegradable bag with the poop in it, put it into this biodigester, turn a crank, and then it actually powers gas lamps in the UK. So it can actually turn into energy that can be utilized, but including the bag and digesting that. What about the idea of uh, paper, a stronger paper dog waste bag? Yeah, and I think that's part of the technology is moving that forward um, because you can have more bins in the park, but the the tricky bit is actually picking it up um, and getting the poop into the bins. What about having those bins available for people in their homes or like, you know, with garbage pickup, if they paid extra to have a red bin for curbside pickup? Well, there's a couple options at home. And one is um, composting um, and exploring that. That's another option. There's anaerobic breakdown. There's potential composting. So you can have a separate composting, um, similar to what you do with your vegetables and that on the home front. And you can actually flush um, dog waste in your own toilet, which means it goes directly into the wastewater treatment system. And so that process that they're doing when somebody's away from home and adding water and putting it in, you can just get straight to that by doing that at home. So you can either do that when you're at home or you could theoretically take the waste home with you and do it there. It sounds like, though, the technology in terms of like how to make that happen hasn't caught up yet for people, right, For to make it handy. What's handy for them is to take the bag out, put it in the bag, throw the bag out. Well, yeah, and that's why I'm excited, the fact the city's put this call out, because I do think we have some interesting uh, um, entrepreneurs out there, and I think technology is advancing now. 
Um, and so, you know, we uh, we aspire to some zero waste uh, goals in the city. That's part of our sustainability strategy. Um, and I think the technology is catching up there. So I know a local company, Recycling Alternative, has um, is proposing some options in terms of a combination of anaerobic breakdown as well as composting. So I'm excited to see who applies to that call from the city and who comes forward. And what about the ways in which to pay for that? Like what about like if you're a dog owner, should you be paying extra? Are those all ideas that are going to be explored? Uh, good question. Um, and I, I think right now the focus is on looking at the technology, but you know we do pay for waste pickup in the city right now. Um, you pay all those fees and utilities in terms of you know garbage collection and water and um, and it's handled that way. So there are mechanisms in place to look at it. But right now, I think we're trying to identify what technologies are out there. And, okay, what about expanding the Red Bin program as well? Because you're saying, uh, I, there's, I haven't seen one at the park kind of in my neighborhood, and there's a ton of dogs in my neighborhood. Yeah, that's what the motion that I brought forward to council in May called for, was an expansion of the pilot program. It was six parks. So, for example, there's one at John Hendry near Trout Lake. There's one at uh, Hinge Park in Olympic Village. But they are few and far between. Um, and so we do need to have more of them across the city. And are people using them, right? Like you put them they there? Are, to- they are definitely using them. They're well used. So the pilot program is working. It's just a question of getting more out there. And if we get more out there, we create more waste. And so then we have to manage the waste. Right. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy when exactly. you put them out there. So you were mentioning that this, the city of Vancouver is kind of looking for ideas now. So what is it that you're looking for? What do you what do you need help from people for? It's a call out from suppliers or entrepreneurs that would like to provide that service um, and that can scale up to do it. I know Metro Vancouver is also really interested to see who comes forward because we have, you know, we were talking about maybe 32,000 dogs in Vancouver. you got about 350,000 across Metro Vancouver in the region. So, I'm sorry, there's 350,000 dogs in yes. Metro Vancouver? Yes, that is the number estimated oh, by I'm, Metro Vancouver. Wow, it's a lot of dogs. It does a lot. People love our dogs. Yeah, true. I mean, we have one, and I can't imagine, you know, households all over our neighborhood have dogs. In fact, you know your neighbors based on where the dog lives. Yes, yeah. And it's very social, right? And it's um, and people get out into, into parks, and, you know, it's a way for them to get exercise and be outside in green space and connect with their neighbors. So, um, Can you yeah. think of any jurisdiction, any city in North America or, or even in Europe that has dealt with this as an example? Uh, Waterloo a couple of years ago also was doing a test and uh, they did it in three locations, I believe. And um, through their test, they were able to turn it in some of the waste into energy because you can turn it into biofuels and, and power, I think, 100 homes with electricity. So I'm not sure where they're at right now, but interesting to see that a, a lot of cities are trying to move this forward. So we always brag about our tech talent here. So what you're doing is kind of issuing a call to arms, a bit of a challenge for that tech talent. 100%. So uh, cities put out a call, uh, closes September 15th. So if you've got the technology, you've got an idea, now's a great time to step up. You've got 10 days, 10 days to help this, give some <laughs> ideas to the city to solve its dog waste problem. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Simi. That's Sarah Kirby-Young, Vancouver City Councilor, talking about a waste problem that, let's face it, we all have in Metro Vancouver. Do you hear how many dogs she said? How many dogs we have in Metro Vancouver? Yeah, what is the better way for dealing with this? We think we buy those bags that say compostable, therefore we are okay. It turns out not so much. What do you think they should do? Email me, simi at cknw.com. About a year ago, here on the show, we were talking about the Loch Ness Monster. And the reason is that a University of Otago geneticist had been doing some research into the DNA found in the water of the Loch Ness and was hoping, through that work, to figure out if there was any unusual kind of DNA activity in the water and therefore maybe be able to solve the mystery of the Loch Ness Monster. Well, now it's been a year. The research has been done. And of course, we want to know, what did they find? So joining us once again to talk about this is Professor Neil Gemmel, Ag Research Chair in Reproduction and Genomics at the University of Otago in New Zealand. And Neil, thanks so much for being back with us today. Oh, thanks so much to me. Appreciate the interest. Well, I'm excited to hear about what you found. So tell me about the process of the work that you were doing. Okay, so it's relatively simple. So the basic premise is that life is messy. As we move through our environment, we shed pieces of skin and hair and what have you, and and all organisms do this, basically, all large organisms. And we're collecting that detritus of life from the water uh, using effectively a molecular net to collect that cellular material and extract the DNA from it. And then we use that DNA and we sequence it to figure out what species are living within a particular environment. So for big things, we're we're just picking up little pieces of cells from them. For the small things, we're actually picking up the entire organism. But we get a very large census of life from a relatively small volume of water. Okay, so you thought this would help you figure out if there was anything in the water of the Loch Ness that shouldn't necessarily be in the water. Is that right? 
Yeah, that's roughly it. So we're looking for things that are a bit different, obviously, from what we might expect based on our understanding of life in the lock. Right. So what we hoped we'd do is we'd describe all the species that uh, we, could, we could find from vertebrates right through to bacteria, and then we would be able to look at those species and say, is there anything in there that's just a little bit surprising? Okay, and nobody, and so that's effectively what we've done. Nobody had done that before? No, nobody's ever used environmental DNA to study Loch Ness before us. And in fact, the sort of project of the scale that we've undertaken is extremely rare. So we took 250 samples across Loch Ness uh, at the surface, at uh, 50 metres down, 100 metres down, and right down into the depths of Loch Ness, about 200 metres down. So the deepest point in Loch Ness is about 227 metres down. So it's a very large, very deep body of water. All right, Neil. So what did you find? Tell us. Okay, so what did we find? Well, the reassuring thing is that we found most of the things we expected we'd find. So if you look at the fish, we find all the fish species that we know are in Loch Ness. Uh, but then we went out and we tested a number of hypotheses that have been put forward to explain the, the monster myth and what people have uh, reported seeing for um, decades now. So one of the ideas that was put forward was that there might be an extinct marine reptile, a plesiosaur or something like that, uh, that that's swimming around in Loch Ness. And the short answer is we find absolutely no evidence for a plesiosaur or indeed actually any large reptilian type creature in the Loch Ness uh, water samples that we took. Can we exclude plesiosaur completely as a hypothesis? No, we can't. But we can, all we can say is we've got no evidence. Okay, but did you find anything that made you go, hmm, okay, that's worth a deeper mm, look? Yeah, yeah, so we looked at fish because I always thought fish was probably a good, a good explanation because they don't have to come up to the surface to breathe. So they can stay submerged for a long period of time and you might only see them rarely. We looked for giant catfish and sturgeon and we didn't find those. But we did find an awful lot of eel DNA. And one of the early ideas around the Loch Ness uh, sightings was that there might be some sort of unusually large eel that might be breaking the surface and uh, explaining what people were seeing. So we don't know if the samples that we've uh, sequenced are from a giant eel or an extremely large eel. Um, all we can say is that there's an awful lot of eel DNA in the loch and that we can't exclude the possibility that a giant eel might be an explanation. Okay, when you say awful lot of eel DNA, how noticeable was that? Well, it was, it was pretty abundant. Um, so when we look at our 250-odd samples, we find significant uh, evidence of eel sequence in most of those. And that's both at um, the surface and right down into the depths of the lock. So there's, there's a, pretty much not a site within the lock that we don't find eel. And you can contrast that to a species like pike, which is also present in the lock, but might have only been found in maybe 15 or 20 sites out of the 250 we surveyed. So eels are probably abundant and also uh, frequently encountered uh, by our environmental DNA survey. Okay, so are eels known to be in the Loch Ness? Like, have they been seen there before? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we know there are eels there. It's just the sheer quantity of them. I think teeming would be the word we would Ooh. use. Um, it has a large number of eels. Uh, in comparison to things like uh, Atlantic salmon and char and other freshwater fish species that we know are in Loch Ness. So um, I think that was the surprise to us, is that just the sheer abundance of material that we observed. Right. So is that something that you should, should have been visible then? If there was that much eel DNA, you should be able to see that many eels. Well, you can certainly see eels on underwater cameras. I mean, they're not shy. Um, I mean, obviously, they're predominantly nocturnal. But yeah, look, we knew there were eels there. It's just that the numbers seem quite large. Um, and maybe there is a big eel in there. Who knows? Okay, so then what do you do now with this, Neil? What do we do now? I guess, so there are a couple, I mean, we don't know specifically if it's a large eel, but we do know from other studies of genetics that there are some genes that are associated with large body size and things like ourselves and mice and dogs and a variety of other species. So we could go looking in our eel DNA for those specific genes and see if there are any mutations that are associated with um, accelerated growth or large body size. So that might be something we could do in the future. Um, and, and there's also the possibility to go back and do the study in a more exhaustive way. Right. So do you think this, for you, does this definitively answer the question of what is not in the Loch Ness? Well, proving things aren't there is really hard. All we can do is really prove that things are there. 
So there is always the room for um, people who want to believe in the monster to say, oh, well, you haven't sampled adequately. Um, and that would be a fair criticism. So we took 251 litre samples from a body of water that is 7 billion cubic metres. So uh, literally uh, a very small amount of water from a very large body. Um, and if we took more samples in larger amounts, then perhaps we detect more species than we have um, already. But as I said, we, we picked up every single fish species that we expected to see there. So we think there is uh, robustness and fidelity in our approach. So I'm, I'm reasonably confident. Plus, if we wanted to make it bigger, boy, that would be a really expensive experiment. Um, and we could also sequence uh, more and, and, and at more depth and in a, not in a random way as opposed to a targeted way, which is what we've done. Right. So you're not done yet then? Well, when's the project ever finished? You know, that science is one of these things that always has uh, some element of uncertainty and doubt associated with it. And the best way to remove that is to replicate work and expand it. Um, so I think what we'll discover is that others will come back and redo our study in different ways. We might be involved, we might not. Um, if you look at sonar, for example, there have been many, many sonar studies of Loch Ness. None of those have found any evidence of a monster, but it doesn't stop people coming back and using the technique. And I suspect with environmental DNA, people will come back and use the technique uh, to see if they can find evidence of a monster. But the real beauty of this is that, monster or not, we're collecting a phenomenal amount of information about what is in Loch Ness uh, today, or more accurately, June 2018, and that forms a baseline that we can that we can use to check to see if if there are changes over time. If the lock gets more polluted over time, does the species um, composition that we see in the Loch Ness uh, alter? And I think this is important information that will give us better tools to manage our environment, uh, which, if we're very blunt, is in big trouble, and we need all the tools we can to help. Well, it sounds like your work is actually just starting. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. You're very, very welcome. Thanks so much for the interest. That's so interesting. That is Professor Neil Gamel, the Ag Research Chair in Reproduction and Genomics at the University of Otago uh, in New Zealand. They examined the DNA in water. They wanted to see what's in the water. I don't want an election at all. I don't want an election at all, but frankly, I cannot see any other way. The only way uh, to get this thing done, to get this thing moving, is to make that decision. Do you want this government to take us out on October the 31st, or do you want Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party to go to that crucial summit in Brussels on October the 17th? Listen, you think you've had a tough week? Oh, consider yourself lucky to not be UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, as you were just hearing him there. He's saying that there must be an election so the public can decide in the UK whether or not definitively, apparently I thought they'd already decided this, to leave the European Union on October 31st or remain there for longer. So he has been repeatedly telling reporters today that there is no other way out of this mess. And here's why. The House of Commons yesterday rejected his attempt to call an early election next month. So he's already been told by Parliament, nope, we don't want an election. We're not doing that. And even though his party, when he became prime minister just weeks ago, actually had a slim, slim majority. There were also moves to stop him from taking Britain out of the EU at the end of October, even if there is no deal with the EU to pave the way. He said in a speech today that he would, quote, rather be dead in a ditch than go back to the EU to ask for another Brexit delay. You think I'm exaggerating? Have a listen. Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes. And sorry. I can. And would you I'd rather, rather be, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. <laughs> so you would resign first, Prime Minister, rather than go and ask for that delay? I, I, look, I just don't I, I really it costs a billion pounds a month. It achieves absolutely nothing. What on earth is the point of a further delay? I think it's 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 totally totally pointless. Except there's nowhere really else for them to go at this point. Parliament has said no, we're not going without a deal. Uh, they said they and they can't ask. He says he won't ask for another extension, and he's the one who has to ask for the extension to make it happen. And so now they're stuck. And like it or not, I think at this point the EU is going to go. You know what? Well, October 31st, we're just going to wipe ourselves of this mess. We don't want to deal with this anymore. But here's how Boris Johnson's week has been going. 
uh, remember, he just came to Parliament this week as the Prime Minister for the first time. He's lost every vote in Parliament. He has completely lost control of the Brexit process. He lost his bid for an early election. He even lost his majority in the House of Commons. He also lost 23 MPs, including two former finance ministers, uh, Winston Churchill's grandson, and today, his own brother, Joe Johnson, who quit. His brother, some of them were removed from the party. Some of them he kicked out of the party, but not his brother. His brother actually quit. And he was asked about his brother's resignation today. And here's what he says. When you became prime minister, you said you would unite our country. Instead, you're splitting your party. And now even your own brother feels he cannot serve under you. If your own brother doesn't trust you to act in the national interest, why should all of we? Well, uh, you'll have seen what uh, Joe had to say about our agenda, and he's a a strong... Look, people people disagree about the EU. But the way to unite the country, I'm afraid, is to get this thing done. That is the reality. The longer this goes on, the more dither and delay we have from, uh, from Parliament, inspired, I'm afraid, by Jeremy Corbyn, the worse this thing will be. What people want to see is a resolution, and they want to see us getting this thing done. And that's what we're going to do. He had only good things to say about his brother. He said, listen, all people disagree on Brexit. Lots of families across the UK have similar disagreements, and this is similar to that. Uh, But the continuing problem is like, what happens now for them? And apparently he will see the Queen in Scotland tomorrow, uh, I guess looking for a way out of this, uh, wondering what is happening with this. Will they have an election? What could he possibly do? This point, it's a stalemate. Who knows what could happen uh, in the UK at this point? That just seems like a complete and total mess. At this point, yeah, knock wood, right? That's the kind of mess that you wouldn't want to see us in at all. Uh, but we'll keep following it because it certainly is fascinating to watch their parliamentary democracy in action and dealing with this huge, huge issue. We're talking about the taxi industry, the ride-hailing industry, and, and I know it probably feels to you like we have been talking about this for a long time. And that is true. We have been talking about it, it seems like, for years. But we thought we were getting to the end here. We thought we were getting to the finish line. Process being put in place to bring ride-hailing companies like Lyft and, yes, even Uber after a delay in, in making their answer, coming to BC. And now more turmoil. We heard that the Taxi Association, the Vancouver Taxi Association uh, today saying they're going to go the route of a judicial review in trying to stop the government's uh, process from happening. And we also know that the government themselves, not doing themselves any favors, uh, was this letter that we're hearing about, was it pressure to change the Passenger Transportation Board's decision or just a letter that points out concerns? Those are the questions after there was this letter sent by Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna to the Arms Length Transportation Safety Board all having to do with the board's decisions when it comes to ride hailing in this province. The letter talked about concerns about the lack of limits on the number of drivers, along with congestion issues. Let's find out what the intention was here. Joining us now, Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna. Thank you very much for being here. It's a pleasure, Simi. Why did you send this letter? Well, the Passenger Transportation Board had said it was going to reassess its supply decision once it had data, and the letter essentially just expresses support for that. But it also relays some concerns to the Passenger Transportation Board, brought to me by mayors, by other stakeholders, and by constituents. So it really is showing support for the independence of the Passenger Transportation Board, um, and as I say, relaying some concerns I've heard about congestion and um, about about supply and the impact that that might have on the taxi industry. But do you do you still stand by the decision to send the letter in light of concerns and critiques now that that was not appropriate for the minister to do that to a board that is supposed to be arm's length? 
board is arm's length and I respect the independence of the board. I think that, um, as I say, reading the letter, you can see very clearly it's, it's supportive of the board and supportive of the work. Um, I, and I do respect having the passenger transportation board. I've got to say we've um, seen what the BC Liberals would do. They would br- have brought in an unregulated approach to ride sharing, which would have completely wiped out the taxi industry. I mean, we've heard from uh, but- Jazz Johal, their main, their mm-hmm. main spokesperson, saying he would have just ripped the bandage off and let the free market apply. What we're doing is working through a regulated system, making sure that we get both a taxi industry that continues and that we in- have ride hail in BC this year. But what do you expect the board to do with your letter? Do you expect them to respond and say, yes, we'll do this? Yes, we'll take another look at it? Like, what is the end result you expect? It was information passing to the board. It was making sure that the board was aware of the the information that I, as a minister, have received. Every time I've received information, I've also suggested that uh, those people go to the Passenger Transportation Board. The Passenger Transportation Board is independent. Um, they are able, very, very aptly able, I think we've seen, to make decisions. Uh, we are waiting to get data to see how ride-hailing comes. But I've got to say, um, people have been waiting for seven years for ride-hailing, five years with the BC Liberals. We have brought in ride-hailing in two years. Uh, we have now seven companies that are applying in BC, and I'm very excited to see see what is going to be happening in the next couple of months. But if the board is so aptly able, as you put it there, why did they need a reminder from you about what to look at? Well, as I say, it's just uh, I'm absolutely supportive of what they're doing. It was putting out there what I have heard. And I think that as minister, it's important to share that sort of information. Um, I'm not throwing arrows. I'm not, I'm not making uh, wild accusations. Um, I'm not working as, as the BC Liberals and their chief spokesman, Jazz Johal, is uh, uh, just going straight mm. for the jugular and calling the taxi industry a cartel. I mean, we, we know that there are family supporting jobs in that industry. It's been around for many generations. We've talked about having a level playing field. And as a minister, I said very clearly in that letter that it's, it's supportive of the hard work the Passenger Transportation Board has done. But as a minister, it's also incumbent to share the information that I have received. Were you surprised that the board decided to not cap the size of the fleets that were allowed for these companies? The Passenger Transportation Board took lots of evidence. They heard from a lot of people and um, they decided not to cap it. Uh, that it was their decision. And I think that what we've seen is that this is how a regulated system works. Um, if we'd had, say, the, the BC Liberals coming in with Jazz Johal uh, ripping that bandage off, bringing in unregulated ride, ride sharing, we'd be in a very different situation. We would uh, have wiped out one complete industry. Um, his, his decision, Jazz I know, Johal's but that's a what if. would have that's, wiped out that's, the taxi Mayor Minister, that's a what if. I'm not interested in what they would have done. What we're doing is what, what your government has done, what you have done here. Were you surprised that there was no fleet cap? Were you expecting a fleet cap? I was anticipating the Passenger Transportation Board to come with decisions from the evidence that they had heard. They had submissions from the taxi industry. They had submissions from the ride hail industry. They had submissions from experts. I was not going to prejudge what they were going to come with, that they are an independent board. As I say, I'm very respectful of that, the very hard work they've done to make sure that our policy of bringing in ride hail um, actually happens. We, what the Passenger Transportation Board needs is data, we have no data yet. We now actually have seven companies who want to work in BC um, who have applications in. So they will soon be getting data about um, how this works in British Columbia. As I say, seven companies who now have the opportunity to meet people's needs and meet people's desires for app-based ride-hailing in British Columbia. The, the Passenger Transportation Board is seeking data. They'll get the data and make decisions based on the evidence that data uh, provides. The Vancouver Taxi Association Association says they would like to take this to a judicial review. Do you, is that at all, do you think impacting the timeline here or, and are you concerned about that? 
I, I have uh, faith in the Passenger Transportation Board. I'm obviously not going to comment about the process of whether or not there should not be a judi- whether there should be a judicial review or not. We, we have said that we're going to have ride hailing in British Columbia this year. Uh, we have seven companies that want to be here operating here that have been waiting for years to be able to operate here they've been had the opportunity for since 2012 to come to british columbia in the last two years i think we've made enormous strides that the bc liberals weren't able to make so any of these like last you know couple of days that things have been happening you don't see that as changing the timeline it you still think companies will be operating this year We've seen seven companies apply. They are uh, recruiting drivers. They are looking at places right across the province, the lower mainland, uh, smaller centers. They, they, they want to work here. I am anticipating we are still going to get ride hail in British Columbia this year. This is our, our aim. It's the Passenger Transportation Board's aim. And I know that everybody in British Columbia wants to see that too. And what is your message then to the taxi companies that are still upset by this? That we are working on a level playing field, that we have very clearly worked to ensure that we have both um, ride hailing here, that we have a taxi industry here. We've been very clear right from the beginning that we were going to work to both modernize the taxi industry. That was our commitment when we brought in our... um, before we brought in our legislation that we'd work with the taxi industry to modernize the taxi industry and uh, also enable ride hailing, something that BC Liberals were unable to do in, in mm. five years. Why not eliminate boundaries then for taxis? Why not give them more of a level playing field then? Well, I've got to say that this is obviously a contentious issue. Uh, Some parts of the taxi industry wants to have boundaries. Some parts don't. This is something that the Passenger Transportation Board wants to see. Um, Again, I I go to the the voice from the other side. We hear Jazz Johal um, saying that he is helping taxi uh, one day, saying that he's going to help them on boundaries. On the next day, he's saying that they're a cartel. Um, I I think that we really have to leave that to the independent passenger transportation board. So if they want to look at it, they are free to look at that? This is something that they will be looking at. They've already indicated it's something that they want to look at, and uh, uh, they will do. They need that evidence. They need that data. We are on day uh, day two of taking applications, day three of taking applications. We still got a ways to go. I think that everybody who's been uh, calling for app-based ride hailing is going to be very happy. We'll see about that. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure, Simi. Bye now. That is Transportation Minister Clara Trevena. Let's get a breakdown now from the other side of this issue. The people who definitely support ride hailing want to see it happen in this province. Ian Tossenson joins us now, the spokesperson for Ride Sharing Now for BC. Ian, thanks so much for being here. Absolutely, Simi. How you doing? Good, thank you. What do you make of the last couple of days with these letters going around and now judicial review being threatened? Like, What do you make of all this? I think this is pretty typical of any market where Lyft and Uber uh, wanted to operate. I think the taxi industry has this kind of reaction. Um, I was a little surprised that, you know, in a judicial review, I don't think it's going to go anywhere because, you know, they tend not to want to overturn the decisions of an independent body. And the independent body was, you know, basically saying what the the, um, all-party committee said is that, you know, there should be no surprise to tax industry. They, you know, they recommended no caps, no boundaries, and, and some pricing mechanisms. So this is not a surprise. I think it's a bit of a desperate attempt by the tax industry to to do what they can, but I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Right, but what about the government? They, I'm, Let's face it, some of them sound pretty concerned about this. Well, I think, you know, and I think that's the politics of this. I thought about that too, Simi is that I think the government needs to be saying that they're supporting the industry. I mean, no one, I, I keep saying this, no one wants to see the tax industry, you know, um, go away. Right. We certainly want to see the tax industry get more competitive and stop maybe whining like they do. And I think the government needs to be saying, you know what, um, we're concerned about some of these things, or we're concerned about the impacts. But I think they do know, they can't do much about it. I, I don't know what the minister said, I, I missed that segment, but I know, that the, I think the, the, uh, the fact that there's an independent passenger transportation board that did say, in time, we'll get some data and we'll take a look at this and see what we what adjustments we made. I think that's fair, but I just think a little bit of this is is, is posturing a bit by the government just to make sure that the industry knows that they're not going to abandon them, and they, and they shouldn't, right? Yeah. 
Right. Okay. But like, as people have pointed out today, the lots of industries get disrupted. You don't see the kind of defense of those industries the way we're seeing of the taxi industry. Yeah. And I think that's where the votes count. Like if you look at a couple of MLAs in Surrey that are talking about, you know, putting the pressure on, I mean, the government understandably is worried that they're going to have a backlash and lose votes and lose seats, particularly in Surrey over this. Um, It's pretty intense. I mean, people are talking about recall campaigns and I think it'll settle. The Premier just has to, I think he has to to, um, to stay the course. Mm-hmm. I don't think anything's going to happen from this. I think the taxi industry just needs to not put us on hold for 20 minutes and not show up, you know, 20 minutes yeah. or half an hour late and get competitive. And and this is all a sideshow. I don't think it's going to change much, um, Simi. I really hope it doesn't change much. Yeah, it didn't sound like it would, but we'll see about that. Now, last time I talked to you, Ian, you were going to be having meetings with the city of Vancouver to find kind of pick up and drop off locations. How did that go? Where are we at? Like, is this whole process still moving forward? Yes, it is. Um, They're they're quite interesting because they're just sort of, they heard the announcement. Now they're trying to figure out the whole issue about, let's not make sure we have congestion. So one of the big areas, obviously, is the cruise ships. So they're going to look at a couple of staging areas. Which probably is around cruise ships. It's probably around Granville Street. And they do this in other cities where they would actually have a, a lift uh, station and an Uber station, so people know where to go as opposed to cars just sort of you know being a little bit too congested, right. if you will. Um, they, they had some crazy ideas about well, we're going to you know, add a fee here and a fee there, and we just said don't don't do those kind of things. Like let the system get going here. And then let's all work together. I'm not just talking to Lyft. I'm just having lunch with the new general manager of Lyft. They want to be problem solvers for the sake of the community. They're not trying to work anti-anything. So we said to the city, let's just work together collaboratively and just stop talking about fees and all these kinds of things because we don't know what the future looks like yet. Right, so, but are you confident, you're confident at this point, Ian, that despite all of this other noise going on right now, that this is happening? I'm sticking to my November dates. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> I guess we'll be talking to you in November then. Uh, Ian, thank you very much for your time on that. Uh, thanks, Simi. Okay. okay. That's Ian Dawson, spokesperson for Ride Sharing Now for BC. He's also the president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. want to talk as well about another story that was highlighted today by the Vancouver Fire Department, actually by Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. And this, you know, you hear about... Uh, metal thefts and things like that going on, copper wiring, all of that being stolen. This is kind of along those lines, but this has some very serious repercussions, uh, potential consequences for this. Essential firefighting equipment that is being stolen from high-rise buildings. Police in Vancouver say they have now had more than 60 cases of this kind of theft reported to them. And to find out more about what it is that is being stolen, we're joined now by Captain Jonathan Gormick, who is the Public Information Officer with Vancouver and Fire Rescue Services. Captain Gormick, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having us. What What's being stolen here? Can you describe it to me? Yeah, this is the connection that's on the exterior of a building, usually on the front, um, that's a Y-shaped metal connection that's about three or four inches in diameter. And what it is is it allows firefighters to either augment the sprinkler system in a building if there's been a sprinkler activated or supply water to multiple levels of the building. Uh, and it doesn't even have to be high-rise. It can be three, four uh, stories and upwards. So it's, it's even low-rise apartment buildings that are affected by this. And really that allows, uh, obviously it allows us to support the sprinkler system if uh, that's been activated and extinguishing a fire. But more importantly, it allows us to get large volumes of pressurized water to any floor in a building for a quick fire attack. Okay, so clearly an essential piece of firefighting equipment. Yeah, I mean, the theft of these is akin to stealing life jackets or, uh, you know, seat belts or airbags out of a car. It's uh, a jaw-dropping safety concern. And how big of a problem is this right now? Uh, well, I would like to say that even one theft is a big problem, but the fact that it's so pervasive and that we've seen multiple thefts from some buildings, and uh, like, like you said earlier, 60 of these gone now. Um, I think the excuse that the person doesn't know what they're stealing is probably long gone, and it's um, they just don't put right. enough value on uh, not only human lives, but probably lives within their own community. So you're saying there's no excuse here. People know what they're stealing when they're taking this. Yes. I mean, it's, it has to be obvious by now what it's for. Um, it, it does put the occupants and firefighters at really great risk. Um, we can still get water to those floors, but what it takes is now hand-stretching lines up the stairwell 
uh, to the fire floor. And that can delay rescue, it can delay fire attack, and it certainly gives more time for the fire to spread to uh, neighboring apartments and possibly the whole building. And so what is the cost of replacing these? Like, does the building have to do this? Or I guess they call their insurance company? It is the building that has to cover it, unfortunately. Uh, and they can range, depending on what's taken from $500 up to about 5000 by the time you consider the piece that has to be replaced, uh, the labor that goes into reinstalling it and then uh, backflushing the system and making sure that it's uh, able to withstand pressure and fully operational. Right. So that clearly, that's a lot of um, a lot of work for someone to do for every single building where this happens. It's it's a massive amount of work for the building owner to replace these, and and a huge safety concern when they're missing. All for uh, you know not much in terms of metal mass, but uh, and I can't imagine that the thieves are getting what would be equivalent to a fair market value because anyone who's purchasing these uh, has to know that they're uh, that they're illegally taken and would probably be offering a fraction of what they're actually worth in terms of metal. Yeah. So, like, what is the value here? Is it just the metal, and is it that valuable? It is just the metal. And I mean, I think you, you could probably understand the value of, of metal and it as a revenue source when you see people, you know, risking their lives entering things like uh, BC hydro compounds to steal wire and the, uh, the amount of risk that that takes on. So even the small amount of metal is very valuable. We totally understand that it's, uh, you know, people are living in some pretty dire conditions in terms of income and poverty, uh, but this one is inexcusable. It's putting multiple people at huge amounts of risk. I also, I would imagine this isn't easy to do. No, well, it, it appears easy enough. I mean, they're, they're exposed, they're external to the building. Um, I mean, pretty much with a hacksaw or a power grinder and a little bit of a, few, a few window of not being watched uh, is all it would take for someone to, to hack one of these off. Um, I mean, I suppose it could be more guarded somehow, but we have to make them easily accessible for us so that we can find them and connect to them in the dark in, in seconds. So they can't be too obscure to put in a locked box. Right. But we also don't think we ever conceived that uh, stealing them would be a problem. Yeah, have you heard of this happening anywhere else? Uh, not that I'm aware of. And uh, thankfully, it's the first time I've heard of it in Vancouver, but it's, uh, it's gotten to be quite a problem. This isn't a few of them. This is 60. <laughs> that is a lot, 60 of them. So then, Captain Gormick, like, what is the message you want to put out there? Because you're right, clearly these are for sale somewhere. Uh, so you want people to know, hey, that's where this is from. So don't do this. Don't buy this. Yeah, there's multiple opportunities uh, to put a stop to this. And you're right, if, if someone is purchasing these, uh, whether they know what they are and don't understand the importance or whether they don't know what they are, immediately report that to police. Um, and if anyone sees someone uh, doing this, tampering with them, um, they wouldn't be subtle, right? They would be cutting this off with some kind of large tool. Please report it to police immediately. Uh, we need to get this stopped or, uh, you know, someone is going to be injured or killed in the near future. That's a good point. Somebody must have seen this already and they just probably thought there was some maintenance or something going on. Hopefully, or they chose to turn a blind eye or, um, you know, the thieves could be targeting buildings that don't have surveillance uh, when people aren't around, or maybe there's a little bit of darkness or cover on uh, wherever they're cutting them off. Um, They are opportunistic, but uh, at some point, somebody's got to see something and they just need to call Crime Stoppers or call police. All right. Thank you very much for your time on this. Thank you. That's Captain Jonathan Gormick, the Public Information Officer with Vancouver Fire and Rescue Services. There's a big health concern developing in North America that we wanted to talk about today. A second person in the United States has now died after developing what looks like a severe lung illness. And this has had health officials in states all over, you know, America scrambling to figure out what is going on. They believe now that it is somehow linked to vaping. Now, we know that also there has been this struggle to figure out what are the dangers of e-cigarette use. But now they also have this other issue that they're dealing with, the exact cause of these people who have died and dozens of others who've ended up in hospital. This particular victim, they're not saying how old they were, what their name was, uh, died in Oregon in July after using an e-cigarette or vaping device that also contained marijuana. That's according to the Oregon Health Authority. 
Meanwhile, here in Canada, Health Canada is saying people who vape should get medical attention right away if they have any concern that their electronic cigarettes are harming them. And they're saying that there's no sign in Canada right now of any of these kinds of lung problems that they're seeing in as many as 25 American states, but they are monitoring the situation. So let's talk about the situation here in BC. Joining us now is Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer. Dr. Henry, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Are are you concerned about these reports that we have been seeing? Uh, Absolutely. And we've been concerned about um, e-cigarette use, particularly in young people, since this started to become quite a fad within the last couple of years. And uh, we've had quite an increase in young people who are using um, baits and uh, these different types of of e-cigarettes in the last couple of years. So it has been a concern and um, we we were concerned that we don't know the the long-term health effects of vaping. And this, uh, what's happening in the United States has has confirmed our our concerns around that. Okay, so they've confirmed your concerns and what are the next steps that we take here in BC, do you think? Yeah, well, we've been uh, we've been working on this for some time. We are looking very carefully. Um, with we've been in contact with the Public Health Agency of Canada and the U.S. CDC, and we're looking to see if we have any cases similar here in BC and across Canada. And so far, we have not identified anybody. So it may be related to certain products that may or may not be available in Canada. But I think it is a warning sign to us that we don't know a lot of information about these uh, vaping and vaping devices, and there is a real risk to them. Right, but is that enough for us to, say, crack down on the industry? Um, Absolutely. I think there are a number of things we need to do. We have, um, Health Canada did put in some regulations. We think they need to go much further, particularly around the sale and distribution to young people and the marketing to young people. So restricting the flavors that are available. The only thing that um, I think these devices are useful for are for adults who are addicted to cigarettes and even then, the jury is we don't yet yeah. have a lot of evidence that they really do help. What I'm most concerned about is that young people are using them and becoming addicted to nicotine. And that can be um, a, a, a gateway, if you will, into using tobacco products. But we also know nicotine has effects on, on developing brains. And we we don't want young people to become addicted to nicotine. Is it possible, though, do you think, Dr. Henry, to rein this in now? Because it just, it feels like the habit came out of nowhere, right? And is suddenly everybody is using it. Can, is it possible to put it back in the box? Um, you know, I, I, that's a very good question. And it's always a challenge when the, when things have become sort of renormalized, I guess, around smoking and around using these, uh, these types of devices in public. Uh, I think that we are behind in, in making sure we can clamp down on these. But I also, you know, I'm, I'm heartened when I talk to young people, even though many of them have started experimenting with these. We know young people experiment, and that's fine. But we also know that they're, they're smart, and they know when they're being manipulated. And that's the type of thing we're talking about now, the manipulative marketing and, and helping uh, young people talk to each other and providing advice to parents and teachers and others about how to talk to young people about why they would use a vape and what it does for them and, you know, helping them see what some of the risks are. Is there any safe way to use this? Like all those illnesses in the United States, have they been able to narrow down like what the problem actually is? No, and, and that's the challenge. You know, the ingredients found in these vaping liquids can include a whole bunch of things like glycerol and uh, flavors, various levels of nicotine, sometimes very high levels of nicotine, and that in itself can cause symptoms. But they're proprietary, so there are contaminants in there. We know in some cases there's been heavy metals. Um, and in, uh, in the United States, they're still trying to figure out what exactly is causing these. But there's there's just so much we don't know, and that's what the yeah. whiskey part. I guess my mind is kind of blown when you talk about some of the ingredients that are in these things. Like, how are we letting these things be for sale when it seems like there's so many questionable ingredients in there? 
absolutely. I, I agree entirely. I mean, it's there's no medical benefit to these products. Um, people are using them as a as a nicotine hit or something. It's a habit forming, but we don't even know what's in them. And we know that uh, the low heat that is used in these, uh, they, they've had incidents, although know, rare, of, of some of these exploding and causing burns. And there's there's no positive side to to these devices. So um, I'm a big supporter, as are my colleagues across the country, of trying to um, restrict use. And they should be used if they are effective for helping people stop cigarettes, which are more dangerous, um, then they should be treated as a medical device, a smoking cessation device, and be restricted in where they can be marketed. But it is a real challenge because these are mostly being marketed online. And, yeah, uh, it is, is it, illegal in this province to sell it to sell these products to anybody under the age of nineteen. But um, I hear from my the young people in my world that uh, it, they're really easy to get, and that people pass them down when they move on to a new um, product, and they give them to somebody, um, one of the younger people, and. Um, so I think we really need to to work at educating and providing young people with, and it's mostly young people that I'm concerned about. Obviously, adults can make their own choices about whether they use these products or not. But we we really want to give young people the tools to to understand and to say no for for things like vaping. So if somebody does buy this product then, Dr. Henry, if they're looking to buy this product, what should they look for? Like out of the information that's available, what are some things that they should look for to make sure they are playing it relatively safe? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, We know that that these products are regulated, so they should be ones that are approved for use. And Health Canada has come out with a regulatory framework for them. So... Um, not ones that are manufactured illegally or illegally um, brought into the country. So you, they, they can, they do have a, a sign on them that they're approved for you. So those are the ones that at least we know there's been a good manufacturing product process, um, and and that's a step up from what we had a few years ago, where we were getting a lot of. Um, products that were imported, mostly from China, I understand, um, where there was no sort of regulation or oversight of the production. So that's an important piece. Yeah. But, um, and, you know, the ones that uh, people are um, manipulating to be able to add cannabis oils and other things to are also much more dangerous because they're not then being used in the, in the way that they were um, manufactured to be used. It's, ama- it's, it's amazing, though, Dr. Henry, isn't it? The willingness that human beings seem to have for taking up bad habits that come out of nowhere. <laughs> well, it's true. And yeah, these really, um, really appeal to young people. And, you know, most of the products now are owned by big tobacco companies who see this as a way to um, get young people addicted to um, using something like this to the feeling of, of smoking. And yeah. when I talk to, to, to young people, I say, you know, that's where my big concern is. I ask them why they're interested in these. And, um, you know, there's a lot of anxiety out there and in ways that are, I think, quite different from when I was younger. And they, you know, they talk about um, how this helps them relax and concentrate and things like that. So I think we need to do better at supporting young people that to feel that they can um, rely on other things other than chemical yeah. devices to help them um, get through anxiety and, and the stresses of being a young person. Yeah, one would hope, right? Dr. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That is Dr. Bonnie Henry, BC's Provincial Health Officer.